the U.S. Space Systems Command is turning government industry collaboration on its head. Instead of contractors coming to government systems to share information or feedback, the Space Systems Command is testing out the opposite approach. Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski is the chief information officer of the Space Systems Command. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about their new project to create a contractor-owned and operated integrated digital backbone. One of our main pain points that we were seeing within Space Systems Command is how can we work and collaborate with industry partners specifically, with other people in general, but primarily focusing on on how we can work with industry. And so part of our our mantra to that is being able to connect and work with anyone, anytime, anywhere we wanted to. So the concept of an enigma then, too, is to go from device through transport into a cloud to be able to to work together, whether that's in digital engineering or DevSecOps, you know, building code, or just collaborating on a document in general. Um, Oftentimes, you know, the contractors can't get into our networks. We can't get into theirs. We sneaker net things, or it takes forever ever to, to transport files and stuff. So we wanted to be able to have an environment that we understood was secure. We knew who was going to be in it. We could actually work and do things and, and be more productive um, in that respect. And one of the challenges that we always see um, also in the current way of doing business is that a lot of those things are bifurcated. Um, there's a different organization that does each element of those, whether it's from like device management to transport and who, who and where the transport, if it's space transport or long haul, um, and then all the cloud management and stuff too. So we wanted to smooth that out so we understood the full spectrum of how the ones and zeros are going around or being managed or secured, and then providing a good user experience for for the folks and stuff too. So kind of a couple of different problems associated with it, um, but that's pretty much the gist of what we're trying to go after with Enigma. This is not just for contract writing. This is for anything that anyone in the Space Command needs to do. It sounds like, is it a separate cloud or is it a unclassified cloud? Like, how do you characterize this or is it a platform? How do you kind of talk about what this is? Because, again, it sounds like it's just the cloud, which it can be many things to many people. No, for sure. And so we, we go into, like, when I have a user who wants to be able to use the digital backbone, that is Enigma, um, going after what their use case, what is it that they're trying to, to go after or what they're trying to do? So whether it is, like, you know, hey, they want to do a solicitation, and so they want it to be able to do, you know, a digital evaluations or, or something like that, we, we can spin up a cloud for them for that. If they are on contract at that point and they're starting to do the design work, now you can do digital engineering in a cloud where you spin that up for them for that. And the beauty of it is, is that we can then control the compute and storage for it instead of having a generic, like, I need cloud. We can tailor it to what their specific use cases are and, and get to what, you know, compute and storage. We can be better, more efficient managing it in the way that they, um, you know, how many bytes do they need. And uh, being able to kind of manage how we spend on cloud um, that much more. So the other part of it, too, again, goes into the security aspects of it. You know, if the government is providing that cloud environment for contractors or whomever we're working with um, to do that, we know what the security posture of it is. We know who's in it. We can we can monitor and maintain that. Um, we know it, who might be attacking it, understanding that sort of thing, um, which we don't always have that insights into the way acquisitions are currently done, especially when you have third, fourth, fifth, ninth tier subs that are accessing a prime contractor's cloud. We don't always understand like how well that's being secured and data can be exfilled. So we're, we're trying to, to pull that back a little bit as well. 
it almost sounds like it's just sort of a cloud broker setup. What kind of cloud do you need? We have that. Oh, you need you – know, and I imagine this is all unclassified as well. So is, is it is a cloud broker the right terminology or, or how would you terminology? Because I think, again, people are going to listen to this and go, oh, so you have a DevSecOps platform cloud and, and fill in the blank. No, so it's, it's much more than just being a cloud or like, you know, providing a cloud instance. Um, it goes into the device and transport as well, like the access to that cloud. We have that challenge of getting to the cloud or and everybody else getting to the same cloud that we want to with either with that transport or whatnot. So, and when I talk about, um, you know, at the device level, the device may be on, on a base, or it may be on, on location, but it, it could also be remote. And so we're looking at how we can have secure tablets or we can have secure devices that also has that same connectivity um, to the cloud as well. So that's why when I say it's an integrated digital backbone, it's, it goes from device through transport to that cloud access. But the cloud just happens to where we do all of the work. But I need to get access to it. I need the devices to be able to perform to be able to do that too. So that's where we're kind of going. As far as classification levels, Enigma is initially going after IL-5 because um, that's where most of my space systems, um, are be us being national security systems, automatically puts us in a need for IL-5. But we also go going after IL-6. Actually, IL-6 is our first use case to go after secret for some of our first adopters for Enigma and with an IL-5 to be um, there closely behind. So we're trying to go after those first two use cases, but also trying to design the architecture to scale up to the SAP level even um, because we have a lot of systems that, that need to work in there. And again, thinking about classification levels as part of the design and architecture so that it, it, it's that integrated picture so I can take data up and down classification um, is also a little bit unique to, to Enigma so that we aren't bifurcating by classification level either. So it's, kind of, again, that full integrated picture is what we're trying to go after. You kind of answered my next question, so I'll maybe ask a little more specific. Where are we at today with Enigma? Is it still in that design phase? Are you, you talked about use cases. So are you getting close to IOC or, or where are we today? So we're already on contract. We actually awarded the contract back on uh, the 23rd of January. We actually did a, a pretty quick solicitation. So we're all about speed in doing this, but deliberate speed too. <laughs> so for the prototype phase, we have about a year for it to go through. And one of the first deliverables, we have like six, nine, and 12 months um, for certain se um, sets of deliverables. So we should start seeing the first rollout of things um, in the June-ish timeframe. The one thing that's great about Enigma too is I'm trying to leverage commercial as much as absolutely possible. So it's contractor-owned, contractor-operated, leverage everything industry does. We don't need to be inventing things. You guys already know how to do this sort of stuff. So that's going to help lend us to a lot of the speed that we're looking for to being able to, to deploy this kind of system. And then we'll start onboarding folks, understanding how their um, user experience is, whether they um, like the way that the service levels are and things like that. And so that when we go into production, we can help influence what that looks like when we go into the longer term and scaling out of, of the project. It sounds to me like this was a OTA type of you mentioned 369 months prototypes. So you all did it through an OTA, and this is the idea of can we even do this? Does it work for us? Mm -hmm. That's this, what this first year seems to be about. Yeah, so it, it was um, initially awarded under the spec OT contract. Um, so we did do it under the OTA. And again, a lot of it was to inform us on were we asking for the requirements right? Has life changed so we can adopt the requirements a little bit going into production? And then understanding you know, what the business model needs to look like, what costs need to look like, how does the scaling need to look like? You know, digital engineering is going to be the first use case of cloud. But then you know, what does that look like from a compute and storage? So there's a lot of information that we can glean from the prototype that can help influence the production going forward. Currently, if you 
you mentioned a lot of this is done either manually or done with separate clouds. Was there any discussion initially about saying, well, could we beg, borrow, and steal from the Air Force and what they already have set up or what the Army has set up or whomever else across DOD? Was there a reason why you all felt like we should do our own thing? One of the, the big reasons was that connectivity to industry. That wasn't a use case the Air Force was going after in the immediate near term. And considering some of the challenges that we have within the space domain, um, we needed to have something in place like right now. And the fact that we are smaller and are able to, you know, we only have 13,000 or so people versus the 700,000 that the Air Force has, we're able to, to try things out and to be able to get a lot of information and data back to see how it can service us and feed that back to the Air Force. So I am working with um, the Air Force CIO in this as well. They're, they're tracking the project, working with the CTIO at the Space Force side to see, you know, they're tracking it too, how we can fold it into maybe a broader uh, Space Force initiative. But right now for the stuff that we need to do acquisition to be able to get space assets on orbit before uh, we have any challenges from some of our um, near peers, we needed to be able to move out much quicker than some of the things that the Air Force does. Now, that to say, I'm leveraging as much as I possibly can from the Air Force as well. And so we are still, part of what Enigma does too is like, yes, it's a backbone for us on the, for um, some of the work that we have on the space side, but a lot of the services will still pull from the AFNET. And so we still will tunnel back into the mothership, if you will, to be able to get those because we don't need to manage those. We're already being taken care of by the Air side. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. 
I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.